at this time of great uncertainty, many of our normal routines and regular patterns of life are being challenged. The food and farming sector is no exception. If we are to harvest British fruit and vegetables this year, we need an army of people to help. Food does not happen by magic. Hi, everyone, and welcome to Backstory. I'm your host, Dana Lewis. That familiar voice was Prince Charles, who was called for an army of people to find jobs on the UK's fruit and vegetable farms because they are desperately short of people to pick this year's crops. Closed European borders, people sick from COVID-19. That all makes for a dire harvest. And it's a similar story from Europe to Canada and America and on to Asia. In this, our latest edition of Backstory, the delicate international food supply chain is rattled, and some might say very near broken. Caitlin Welsh is the director of the Global Food Security Program at the Center for Strategic and International Studies. Hi, Caitlin. Hi, Dana. As we speak, Prince Charles in the UK is asking people, as in wartime, to go and pick food before it spoils in the fields. What's happening to labor and the flow of workers worldwide in this pandemic? If you can just kind of paint a general picture. Sure. I think that's a, a great question, a great place to start. What we're seeing right now is a food crisis on a global scale, and it's not due to the fact that there's not enough food available worldwide. It's due to disruptions across different aspects of food systems. And that, uh, that, that request by Prince Charles, um, to me, pinpoints access to food with, uh, with, with harvesting food, um, and the, the particular issue there could have to do with availability of labor. Um, what, uh, one thing that we're seeing worldwide is disruptions in labor flows. So that could that could be um, one of the reasons that Prince Charles made that um, made that request. Um, and uh, also, I think that he's he's probably doing that to uh, to reduce the amount of food loss and waste worldwide. Um, it was already very high before the pandemic, um, but we're seeing because supply chains they're very very efficient. They're not flexible though. Um, and uh, when, for a variety of reasons, farmers are not able to reach markets, what we're seeing is uh, is huge amounts of, of, of food lost, unfortunately. Um, with I want to talk to you about that. People. French yeah. fishermen say they're throwing back two-thirds of their catch. Australia is facing an avocado glut. Uh, a farmer in Ontario, Canada, now feeds some of his milk back to his cows. But there is a limit to what can be recycled. Um, you know, most of what cannot be sold will be wasted. Millions of liters of cake beer is going stale. The EU is expecting to lose $430 uh, million worth of potatoes. So America's food waste ratio, um, where you are, is set to rise 30 to 40% this year. I mean, th these are huge problems. They really are. And again, they were problems before the pandemic, and they're, they're, they're actually worse right now. I'll give you some more examples of what we're seeing in the United States. There was one chicken processing company that killed 2 million chickens in April. We had um, another that smashed uh, three quarters of a million of eggs in, in one week. Um, I think one of the biggest tragedies is with farmers who raise animals having to cull their herds, so essentially kill the animals because they can't send them to meat processing plants. Um, and so, we, uh, so we're seeing that in the, um, you know, in the tens of thousands per week across the U.S. Um, so what's happening there is... Uh, there's a, a couple of things. One of the main things is that um, in in March and into April, 
orders from restaurants and not just restaurants, but other places where people gather to eat. So sports arenas, cafeterias at universities, um, public spaces generally, um, those orders fell off of a cliff as people were no longer able to gather. So farmers who are raising animals um, and, and growing growing crops for those um, to, for, for those establishments no longer had markets for their for their goods, so they were forced to, um, and they couldn't adjust quickly enough. They couldn't pivot, and so um, they had no choice but to but to waste their food, just destroy their product. Why do they have to cull beef or cull chickens or cull uh, pigs? Why is that? Because they cannot get the seed, or they cannot afford. Uh, to, to keep those animals longer without sending them to a meat po- uh, processing plant? Or what is the problem? Yeah, um, uh, a couple of reasons. One of them is that um, is when it comes to, to pig supply chains in particular, farmers who raise pigs don't invest in enough space to um, to keep to, to keep pigs. They're, they're used to um, large amounts of product flowing through. So they, um, they, they'll, they'll raise them till they get to a certain size. Um, and then once they reach a certain size then they'll ship them off to be um, to the, to the meat packing plants to be, um, to be processed for consumption. Um, but uh, when the meat processing plants can no longer take them, it means that the pigs continue to grow in size um, and farmers simply don't have space to, um, to, to keep them and, um, and, and are, are forced. And, and again, uh, one thing that's very important is that farmers um, don't want to be making this decision. They, um, they're in, invested in their product and, um, and uh, they're doing this only by necessity right now. And yet you have meat shortages uh, in some supermarkets in, in America. Why is that? You're seeing that because of uh, because the meat processing plants are being taken offline, and that is because um, not because of you know because of there's a, a, a problem inherent to the meat processing plant. It's because of worker illness. And I think that that's one of the most important things. That's been a problem in the uh, U.S. meat industry for decades. Um, but the reason that meat processing plants are being taken offline is because of high rates of of, uh, of illness. We're even seeing death because of COVID nineteen. Almost fifteen thousand meat workers had been infected with coronavirus in meat packing facilities across the United States, and that's across thirty one states. So this is a a, a nationwide problem. Um, we've known about this for several weeks. Uh, hundreds of cases uh, in in the Panhandle in Texas. So it's because meat uh, worker illness at meat packing plants is taking those offline and then um, just back up one a, a few steps from there. And farmers who raise animals to send to those facilities are no longer able to send them there. I mean, obviously you couldn't see this exact situation coming, but could you see the danger uh, over the last 20 years of increased concentration of farms? I mean, America's poultry market, for instance, uh, you can correct me if I'm wrong, I believe is controlled by just four companies. Is that a good thing? Um, yeah, not only that, but I believe um, 90% of chickens uh, uh, raised in the United States are, are, are part of vertical, vertical inter- integration, meaning that the farmers that raise them don't actually own them. Uh, they don't sell them. They, they raise them to sell them to other processors. I think that's a, exa- an example of what you're talking about. Um, what we're seeing in the United States is, is that we have an incredibly efficient food system, but that efficiency has come at the cost of flexibility. So that when you have disruptions like the ones we're seeing today, Producers are unable to to pivot um, uh, to 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 shift their products to other markets. So, for example, um, you have farmers um, and and ranchers raising their product to sell to a very specific consumer. So that consumer might be a specific restaurant or a specific type of restaurant. And when that restaurant no longer um, can, can can take in an order, those producers are not able to pivot so they can sell the product to a different um, to a different consumer, like to grocery stores. And that's because. Um, you have different packaging needs at different outlets. Um, it's because you have different labeling needs at different outlets. 
Um, for example, if you are raising a, a, a particular prime cut of beef um, that a restaurant can no longer take, you're, uh, the, the producer is unable to grind that beef to send it to a grocery store. Um, you just simply have very, very specialized supply chains that are unable to, that are, uh, again, very, very efficient, but unable to, to um, but that are in, un, inflexible. Is this a disruption, a bump on the road, or is, are we in a spiral of the food supply chain? I, I think that we're not out of the woods yet. Um, I think that things will start to get better slowly. We're seeing hunger unprecedented in modern times in the United States alongside images of mass food loss and waste. Um, I think that uh, the public is aware of this crisis in a, in a way that they haven't been recently. Um, and, and, um, and so I, I'd be surprised if we don't take a hard look at our food systems and that things don't change after this, particularly regarding worker health. I mean, a lot of people, when they think of hunger, think of third world. They do not think of America. Yeah. Um, so we're, we're seeing um, shocking rates of hunger here. It's, it's not because there's not enough food available. It's because disruptions all across the system. And it's also because of the economic downturn generally. And that's the one of the main reasons for food insecurity in the United States and worldwide. But you have an economic downturn um, and our the, uh, Fed chair, Jerome Powell, said that this downturn, um, the scope and speed of this downturn are without modern precedent. And so, of course, you're going to see food insecurity without precedent. One of the uh, most shocking statistics that came out of a study that was released last week by the Brookings Institution found that um, in one in five households where, um, where there are children 12 and under, in one in five, um, the children were experiencing food insecurity. And the researchers concluded that young children are experiencing food insecurity to an extent unprecedented in modern times. Uh, around the world, it must be much worse than that, depending on where you are. Exactly. Depending on, on where you are. Um, before the pandemic, there are a, a couple indicators. We had 820 million people, around 820 million who were um, chronically undernourished, so that, that that's a very high baseline to start with before the pandemic. Um, that was a, um, an estimate by the UN Food and Agriculture Organization and some others. Um, the UN World Food Program had estimated before the pandemic that in addition, there were about 130 million people who were at risk of <clears throat> sudden shocks to food, to food security. So at risk of just, for, for different reasons, being thrown into food insecurity. That was before the pandemic. Since the pandemic. The UN, I have another statistic. The UN estimates economic fallout from COVID-19 could see the number of people suffering from acute hunger double to over 265 million this year. Does that kind of jive with what you've heard? It does. That's exactly where I was going. So before the pandemic, they, they estimate 130 million. And then they, because of the pandemic, they estimate that the number of people that could be thrown into food insecurity uh, could double to 265 million. Acute food insecurity just because of sudden shocks um, and uh, yeah, related to the pandemic. And all of this is internationally now tied together, right? It's not that you domestically produce food and sell domestically. Often, uh, Ukrainian wheat, for instance, milled to flour in Turkey, turned to noodles in China. I mean, a lot of the food supply is linked. Mm -hmm, absolutely. Global trade is, um, is essential to food security for countries around the world. United States, for example, we um, rely on imports to meet about 15% of our domestic food needs. The, that proportion is much higher in developing countries where their agriculture sectors are not as uh, not not as advanced. Um, so, uh, so developing countries are much more susceptible to, um, to to shocks in global trade. What we're seeing right now is um, about 15 countries have limited exports of their own food so that they can they can um, they can in an effort to meet their own domestic food needs. 
Um, policy analyses show that those aren't, aren't actually very, are, are not effective measures. Um, but what we're hoping is that that number um, does not rise and that it actually decreases. That's a, that becomes a very serious situation if you have countries saying we're not going to export food. We're going to keep it, it for domestic consumption in a crisis. It absolutely does. Um, the last time that there was a major global food crisis was about 12 years ago, it was 2007 and 2008. And at that time, about 33 countries put export restrictions in place. And that um, the effect of that was that it, um, it, incre- it, it increased food prices such that it threw um, about 40 million more people into food insecurity because of those export restrictions. Uh, at that time, about, about 12 years ago in 2007, 2008, there were about 45 countries that experienced riots worldwide. Um, some of which led to to, um, to political change. Again, right now in the United States and worldwide, the crisis is not because there's not enough food available, but it's because of shocks across the system for all the things that we're mentioning for food processing, sales, um, economic downturn, reducing individuals' ability to purchase food, et cetera. Caitlin, great to talk to you. Thanks so much. You're welcome. All right, Steve Groff joins me now from southeastern Pennsylvania. Uh, he is a farmer. He has tomatoes and spaghetti squash and other things, but he also, and probably more importantly for us, lectures on farming. He's been all over the world. He's written a book called The Future Proof Farm. And Steve, I think uh, you may have to rewrite it after COVID-19. Well, you know, it's kind of timely in a way. When I wrote this book, I had no idea that COVID-19 was coming on, but The Future Proof Farm has to do with how we grow our food. And a big component of it is trying to think about increasing the nutrient density or the nutrients and vitamins that are actually in our food. And that occurs the way we grow it. And uh, so actually the book is very timely, but as you said, Dana, I, uh, I am thinking about writing a follow-up here at some point. Farmers are saying it's a bloodbath in terms of food production. I mean, really all over the world, people are facing incredible challenges. But in the wake of COVID-19, America, which has a $100 billion farm economy, has got some deep troubles. Well, there's some chinks in the armor have been come to light because of COVID-19. And it's all because of our just-in-time food supply system. And uh, because of the workers, it's actually the human component of that. And that's what we heard all about the meat shortages. It's because there are humans, there are people that need to be in the processing factories to be able to do that. So obviously that creates some challenges. Either the people get sick or they're afraid to come to work and you just can't uh, do your, just the assembly line when you have key people missing. And what does it mean just, what does it mean just in time food supply line? um, Let's just take vegetables, for example, you, we grow the vegetables and they're ripe during a certain period of time. Their, their shelf life is very small. And uh, so you harvest them the, the, you know, a few days before they're ripe, and then they have to be processed and packaged. That takes human effort in almost all cases. And, and then they get delivered to the stores. So from the time a product is harvested till it gets to the stores is a matter of days. And then if you have, uh, in the middle of that, if you have uh, a, a section of that or that doesn't um, allow for humans, who will say in this case, to do the processing, well, then it's either ceased or stopped. And then by that time, the tomatoes may rot because they don't stay for three or four weeks. And so then we don't have them. And that's part of it. The other aspect is food service, restaurants, schools, um, businesses even, is 50% of the use of food. 
And the way food is directed for food service is different than it is to grocery stores. It's different packaging, different sizes, even different varieties. I grow specific varieties of butternut squash for grocery stores and other varieties of butternut squash for restaurants. Okay, well, let's just just stop there for a second because restaurants, you're saying that's 50%. I mean, that market just collapsed. It did. It did. So you would, you know, you would think, well, okay, people have to eat. So you can automatically just switch the food instead of going to a restaurant, it just goes to a grocery store. Well, it's not that simple because, as I said, packaging and sizes and a whole host of things. There's a few things that can go to both uh, end users, but not a lot. And that's that's where. So that's why we see that's why we see in that system farmers saying that they have to plow these crops under, which, I mean, is yeah. horrendous given the fact that there it are is. food shortages. It is. And and it's all because of between the farmer and the end user. That's the problem. So what? how should that change? I mean, is, is this a wake-up call? Is there something yeah. positive that comes out of this? Yes, um, there certainly is. And, and I think moving forward, we're going to have to consider more of the direct marketing, the farmers to sell more directly to consumers. And I would encourage consumers to seek out farmers who are able to sell directly. And I'm a small farmer myself. So uh, anytime that I can be more direct to consumer, that may even put a, a bigger share of the dollar, we'll say, into, into my pocket. And people can get it more uh, more directly as well. So I think uh, the uptick in interest of locally grown, for instance, I think will continue. That's not going to serve all our food needs, and that's that's not the point. The point is we need to be aware of some of these safeguards that we probably need to be putting in place here. And going more direct to the farmers is definitely one of those safeguards. Do you think the federal government saying things like they, they want to stop food at the border, they want to keep it inside the United States is a good thing, or is that kind of protectionism uh, a dangerous thing? Uh, you know, it's a two-way street. Um, as we've always said for a while, it's a, it's a small world out there, and I guess, like it or not, you know, we do need to reply, we need to, do need to re, re, um, rely on some other uh, nations that are close. But that being said, I think this uh, COVID-19 has also brought up the fact that we do need to, you know, don't outsource too much, uh, I guess. So I, I would be a big uh, proponent of doing as local as possible. And that means even from a national perspective, uh, we can grow plenty of food. It's, it's not a food shortage as far as growing it. It's the system that is not serving us well right now. My mother originally came from Western Canada, from Saskatchewan, and I've, I've been up there where there were huge wheat farming. And I know, um, I mean, I grew, up on a, I grew up on a cow farm, but I know from the wheat farmers that you just don't plant a crop one year in advance. I mean, you were doing rotation crop, uh, crops and you were planting far into the future, you know, at least three years anyway, when you're doing farm leases. What, what does this suddenly do to everyone? How does a farmer plan now for next yeah. year? Uh, it, they must put everybody upside down. And, 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 and how does that translate into the, the food chain? Yeah, I think uh, we're all thinking about that. Uh, my son and I, who farms, my son, my son farms with me here. We've been discussing that uh, here right now, right now, short term. And we are actually trying to 
uh, focus more on the grocery stores. And we're actually changing up some varieties here at the last minute because we still have time to do that. Our planting system, our planting window has not closed yet. So we're trying to adjust like for the near term, what's the near term for us is three or four months. Uh, but as we move forward, there's still so many unknowns out there. Of now, now it's not so much of how steep is the curve going to be. I think we've flattened the curve, if you will. Now it's how will the reopening work? How's the timeline? And what will come out of this? Obviously, there's political influences at play right now that we feel like it's hard to have any control over. So it's more of a day-to-day -day thing or week-to-week -week thing now, Dana, as we move forward. Uh, I'm is not it going to hit the consumer? Is it going to hit the consumer? Well, Are you going to see it on the grocery know, I, shelves? I, I think we will in some form or fashion. I just saw this morning that there were some restaurants that opened up. They're putting a COVID-19 surcharge on the bottom of their bill. And, and, and it was like, of course, the customers aren't too thrilled about that. And I myself am thinking, wow, that's, I don't think that's going to fly. But it'll probably, um, I, I guarantee you, the price of food is not going down. Uh, how far, are we going to have we? enough? Are we going to have enough? Yes, I I think we will. That to me, I'm not afraid of. Uh, uh, we can grow the we can grow the product. Uh, there there could be some labor shortages. Actually, I'm I'm suffering that a little bit now and getting my my labor. I think I'll be getting it on on time for June, July, and August when I'm busiest. But they're not here yet, and um, it is it is it is a somewhat of a challenge in, in that end of it, but. I'm not too concerned about a shortage of food. I'm concerned more about the supply chain and how that's going to work out. When you say they're not here yet, who are they? Where are they coming from? And will they come? Right. So I use the uh, United States H-2A program, which is the legal way to bring in um, foreign workers. I've been doing that for the last uh, 16 years, I guess now. It's worked, it worked very well. Are they coming from outside uh, the U.S.? Yes, the ones I am getting are from the country of Thailand. So uh, they are right now. There's being delayed because the embassy was shut down, where they need to get their visas. So we're waiting for that. Um, but it hasn't impacted me dramatically yet. Yet, but it will uh, if if there's further delays. So where are I'll they going to sleep? You you obviously have housing there for them. Yeah. How many do you oh, have yeah. in a room? And it must change all of that. Yeah. Yeah, we have uh, we have housing here, and and we have gotten some of the uh, updated requirements of that. And um, to this point, it's something I believe we can handle. I guess I'm always aware that things change weekly here, and this is more of a political thing. The Department of Labor sets those standards and so forth. So we're just going to have to roll with it. And and I would just say, if um, if regulations come on us that are onerous, that just force us to, you know, increase our costs or whatever that means, you know, it's going to have to be passed on. And I guess when they talk about people going hungry, even if you have farmers that have product, if prices mm -hmm. increase, there are a lot of people that unfortunately will not be able to afford this stuff. And a lot of it doesn't get yeah. to food banks. I have been involved with food banks anyway, so I kind of have that channel already open. I don't expect... Yeah, thank you. But I don't expect a high, uh, just super high, you know, double the price of food. I don't expect that. Uh, but I do expect some prices to to come up on the retail side. Uh, on the farmer side, you know, we just don't know. I think, like you said, grain farmers right now, it's, it's not good. It's not looking good. The futures are not good. 
there's so many uncertainties out there that uh, we just don't know, you know, what's going to happen until the end of this year and in the, in the next. Steve Groff, the author of uh, the book called The Future Proof Farm, uh, which, which is getting to be very difficult to future proof your, yourself in this situation. Yeah. Thank you so much. Yeah, you're welcome, Dana. My pleasure. The food crisis has already spilled over into kitchens. A recent poll in Britain shows over half the people are valuing food more, with 48% say they're throwing away less food. Of those wasting less, people say they're planning meals more carefully, and they're getting a lot better at using leftovers. Shopping habits have shifted too. A quarter of the people surveyed say they're getting better at buying quality food as they're not going out and spending money on other things. While more than a third of the people are supporting smaller local business more than ever before. And a further 42% say they're not buying takeaways because money is tight. That's another edition of Backstory. Please share our link and subscribe to the podcast feed. I'm Dana Lewis. Thanks for listening to Backstory. Backstory.